Hello, Dr. Dyke Drummond here at the home of TheHappyMD.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington. Welcome to the latest episode of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Tools so you can recognize and prevent your own burnout. Stories of burnout put to its highest and best use and wellness leadership strategies. Everything you need to be a physician on purpose. Hello again, Dr. Dyke Drummond here in beautiful Seattle, Washington, at the home of thehappymd.com with the latest edition of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. And it is my great pleasure to have Dr. Bowen White here today. And we're going to talk about a whole bunch of different things. God only knows where this conversation is going to range, but it will involve fun and clowns and adventure and very, very unusual career tracks. Both of us have career tracks that match our the unique nature of our first names, <laughs> Bowen and Dyke. <laughs> but uh, let me just real quick, I'm just going to set you up, Bowen. Okay, great. So uh, Bowen's one of those people who came late to medicine, medical school at the age of 29. If you're 29, by the time you get to medical school, you're broken because you haven't done the straight line from high school to college to med school to residency. You've had a life. And in his case, he went for around the world with a backpack of $1,200 for an entire year, was a carpenter, had his own water treatment plant, reverse osmosis, and, you know, the typical Mother Earth news, young 20s in the 1970s adventure. And then you found yourself in medical school, and you were just saying to me just now that you had an epiphany about the most untapped resource in healthcare. So, Bowen, take it away. Thanks, Dyke. Appreciate you taking the risk of inflicting me upon your friends. <laughs> yeah, as a by the time I got to medical school, I went to medical school with the idea that the greatest untapped resource in medicine was probably inside the patient. And I wanted to help people learn how to mobilize and express their own potential for health, wholeness, and healing, which meant that I would be a participant with my patients on a journey. And as a reflection of that, the choices that I made were in keeping with that kind of alignment. I still believe that's true, by the way. Right. It's uh, the most, also the most neglected, you know, somebody has a medical problem, somebody has cancer, you know, don't listen, I know it's scary and everything. Don't worry about it. I'll, you know, we'll get the people to help. And you don't, don't you participate with anything but have the confidence that we can take care of this for you. And I think the we needs to be, we work together. Right. And some people need to know that what they do makes a difference. I mean, every single uh, lymphocyte has receptor sites for all the neurotransmitters we produce. So what you do between your ears may actually have an impact on what those lymphocytes do. And that field, psychoneuroimmunology or neuroimmunomodulation, has totally been ignored in healthcare. But it might be interesting to revisit some of what Candace Pert and other people discovered about cells that uh, may actually be mobilized through guided imagery visualization. When I actually got to work with cancer patients, I ended up showing them a videotape, you know, a v VHS tape. And you saw the, there's these cancer cells, and then you saw these lymphocytes chewing away at the 
outer cell membrane of the cancer cell, and then going in and attacking the nucleus of the cell. And then you saw these macrophages come and, you know, with their pseudopods, swim around the dying cancer cells and eat them up <laughs> so that they could have a visual image of something that they could use right. to participate in some way that, who knows, may make a difference. So that's as an example of what I was interested in doing during my training. I learned to do things in terms of holistic medicine that involve me doing things to you, like I was trained in acupuncture. That was something that I was doing as a resident in family medicine. And so when someone walked out of a treatment room, having visited with me as a resident, there might be smoke coming out because we might have burned some moxibustion in the room to stimulate, you know, the needle. So what I decided to do, a long story short, in my residency, I decided to take clinical electives with people that I thought were doing the kind of medicine that I wanted to practice. And that was holistic medicine, you know, mind, body, spirit, and went, was a founding member of the American Holistic Medical Association when I was a medical student in 1978. And at that original meeting in Denver, Two of the speakers, the guy that started the association, Norm Shealy, was a neurosurgeon who invented the TENS unit and the dorsal column stimulator. He went to Duke and then Mass General. I mean, he was really smart, really good neurosurgeon who started the first multidisciplinary pain clinic in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and quit doing neurosurgery because he noticed you operate them once and then you may get to operate them again. And, you know, it's it's really great. Now, <laughs> go back to doing what you were doing before. And, well, I don't think our job is to get people back the way they were before they came to see us. I think our job is to help them not have to come back to see us so that yes. they know what they can do to help themselves with their problem and not have to return. There you go. So anyway, in a nutshell... I did family medicine because there wasn't a holistic medicine residency in 1978. I went looking for one, and one of the other speakers there was Elmer Green from the Menninger Foundation, who's a grandfather, he and Elise Green, were grandparents of biofeedback. And my first clinical elective was with Norm Shealy, and the second clinical elective was at the Menninger Foundation with the Greens, learning about biofeedback, which was just unbelievable. Here, this they were interested in psychophysiology, and the other part of the Menninger Foundation was all psychoanalytic. So there was this group called the Voluntary Controls Research Group, and they're using biofeedbacks. They were teaching people to do, you know, to use their cortex to <laughs> kind of get the limbic system to calm down and use their passive volition to learn how to self-regulate. And they did a wonderful film called Biofeedback Yoga of the West in like 1973, where they went and studied these sadhus in India and wired them up with technology and saw that, yeah, they could actually do the things they said they could do, you know, like slow their heartbeat, uh, speed up their heartbeat. In fact, Elmer Green on this movie is hooked up with an EEG machine, and he's talking about 
through the use of biofeedback, you can learn voluntary control of involuntary processes, like your heart rate. You can learn to speed up your heart rate like this, and it's real time, speeds up <laughs> or slow down. <laughs> that was something that I thought that's a tool that people can use. So when I decided, I graduated, did a family practice residency because there wasn't a holistic medicine. And a family doc was a holistic doc. He right. knew the family. He went to the house. He knew, yep. you know, if Frank was out drinking, that he'd be hearing from Martha. And, you know, the <laughs> kid, there'd be problems at home. And there was this connection. And so it made sense to me to do family medicine a holistic family practice. And I found a residency with a full-time psychologist interested in holistic medicine, actually in Kansas City. And uh, I spent a month there as a med student to check out the residency. And I thought, this is where I want to go. And that they would support my interests. And they did. And I did group work with hypertensive patients, helping them use biofeedback to learn how to vasodilate in the periphery, warm their hands, warm their feet. Nice. And in the group work we did together, once a week, they bring in their data sheet to their biofeed. You know, they take their blood pressure before, blood pressure after they do their hand warming. And I look at their data, you know, in 10 minutes, how the hour go by. We did that. Now, the other rest of the hour, people just shared their stories, shared their lives, and nurtured and supported each other and encouraged each other. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting. There's something going on here that's really important. And the excuse they had to get together and learn what they're learning was their problem. So the interesting thing to me is that oftentimes there's a meaning in the problem for someone to get. That may be important in terms of their own journey, their own life's journey. And I thought that I wanted to pursue that interest. So I was doing, graduated, I started a holistic family practice. And I also wrote a proposal to start a Department of Preventive and Stress Medicine. I'd gone to the University of Nebraska where they had a Department of Preventive and Stress Medicine. And Robert Elliott and James Buell developed this life stress simulation lab using impedance cardiography, an automatic blood pressure cuff, put people in a room, give them some easy arithmetic to do, take the number 777, subtract seven serially, do it as quickly as you can. You have seven seconds and you get to monitor their physiological <laughs> reactivity to psychological stress. They played a video game called Breakout, the same idea, looking for something called hot reactors, had an exaggerated physiological response to stress. And we replicated that lab. I wrote a proposal. We started a department of preventive and stress medicine at the place where I did my residency, which meant I could put somebody in the lab with hypertension and see whether it's high output or high resistance hypertension. Of course, nobody sent any patients to it because what the heck does stress have to do with, because, you know, it's 1983. Right. <laughs> so I was, and we started a wellness program at the same hospital, and I was going into companies and talking talking about the parameters of wellness at the time, physical fitness, nutrition, stress management, smoking cessation, weight reduction, those things. I was 
going into companies and teaching that. Of course, we weren't doing it with our own employees at the hospital. Right. <laughs> we weren't doing, we were doing it, you know, with, anyway, I wrote an article for the Kansas City Business Journal called Patient Potential. So 1983, I started doing a spot on the CBS affiliate in Kansas City once a week, a medical spot, had the family practice. I had all of these things to be busy doing so I could compensate for my feelings of inadequacy by being so busy doing the important <laughs> grown-up things, right? which I did for a while. And then after a couple of years of that, I decided what I want to do, I want to take a healing journey with my patients. I'm going to go to 90-minute sessions with every patient. I, I brought the biofeedback. I moved out of the hospital. I had a office in an office building, my nine lazy boy chairs and biofeedback equipment. And I left the lab, the hospital, which nobody ever did anything with. Mm, that's too bad. These 90-minute sessions. I, I kept writing the article. I kept doing the once-a-week thing for like seven, eight years. And I quit doing the article after about three years. I changed my life. I decided the kind of medicine I want to practice is doing this group, doing group work and doing individual work with patients that would be hour and a half visits. And the first session, I taught them how to do simple hand-warming biofeedback. They got a digital biofeedback unit to take, and they took a tape of me leading them through an ex hand-warming exercise at home so they could do the biofeedback there, they we didn't need to do it in the office. So after that one time, the biofeedback deal they were doing on their own, and we just talked for all the other 90-minute sessions that we had. What I discovered doing that work with patients, as a doc, you know that people will tell you things that they won't tell another human being on the planet. Right. It's such an honor to get to be there with people in that psycho-spiritual place, that to not include that in terms of, you know, I, I would ask, you know, where are you in terms of, well, I asked them a lot of different questions, but one had to do with that, their own sense of the mystery. What was your upbringing? How, how does that part of your life? Is that something that you realize is important to you, or is that something that's not so important? No, some people actually think that they deserve to be sick. Oh, my. You know, some of what they've done, they they feel so bad about that they deserve it. It was interesting. One of the questions, I asked them this question. If I were a genie and popped out of a bottle and you could have any three wishes you want, what would the, those three wishes be? <laughs> it was always interesting to me if one of those three wishes wasn't to get rid of the problem that brought them to see me. Ah. And that left room for an interesting discussion. I did what I call collecting the dots. You know, the books as kids that we got, you don't know what it is until you connect the dots. And so I'd ask them all of these questions. I, I looked at life as a movie. I started at the beginning of the movie of their life. And we came to the what brought them to see me. And I looked at life as a two-reeler. 
I'm older than you. And I remember when movies, all movies were two reelers. There was a first reeler, first reel, then the intermission, then the second reel. Right. So the first reel ran until they came to me. And the visit to me, they were at intermission. Nice. They were in the sick role. People had already told them what was wrong with them. So they knew that. And at intermission, they had a chance to reconnoiter, to take a look at their life, to see how they got to where they were, and to decide what did they want to keep doing? What did they want to stop doing? What would they like to try again they might have failed at? And what do they want to make sure they do more of? And one of the things I discovered is that when people are in the, the place where they look at their own mortality, they get clear. Right. <laughs> you know, they get clear about what's important as opposed to what's urgent. Right. And they're more willing to break the rules of their own conditioning. Right. To do what's more important. Yep. And that means they're no longer responsible for anybody else's happiness. Well, and, and let me just uh, pause you there for a second, because I have some questions, and I'm sure our listeners have some questions, because this sounds like, you know, to a certain kind of doctor, this is like nirvana, hour and a half visits. You're at, you've actually taken an illness that brought them to a doctor and turned it into a framework for transformation by the questions that you ask and the safety that you provide. And uh, everybody these days is going to have this question. <laughs> Did you get insurance to pay for this or how did how did this work financially? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. We took insurance, but they were responsible for their bill and for figuring out a payment plan. I made up a code. The code was psychophysiological therapy, okay? <laughs> it obviously did not fit with the system as it were. Right. So, insurance was or wasn't involved as much as it might have been because it didn't fit with the system. But they also knew that at the front end. And because they got to figure out a payment plan that made sense for them, I mean, I charged 80 bucks for an hour and a half. And at the time, what was that like? Is that a, is that a, a reasonable amount of money or is it cheap? Or? I'd say it was less than you know, I think if at the time you probably spent, I don't know, that much for an app for maybe 45 minutes with a psychiatrist. Okay. So it's like it's like half price. It it was it was a bargain at twice the fee. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. There you go. It, so it, it it's wasn't a big money maker. Right. And so this was a, a private hash practice. Mm. And did you see regular patients with your hour and a half patients? No, 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 no. I This was all that you did. This is all that I did in terms of that practice. I decided when I had been going and, and doing this teaching and with client in the wellness program at the hospital, I had a really interesting experience. I mean, I really liked the teaching. I liked doing that. And I went to New York. I continued to do acupuncture work right at the beginning of this, beginning to change my practice. I decided, so I was doing a training program in New York City, and I went uh, there for a training. And during the time I was there, 
I ran into a friend of mine that I played basketball with in high school that worked at Payne Weber. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so I, I know everybody. I'm wondering where he's going too. Keep going. Okay. <laughs> so, so I find out he works at Payne Weber. I know that I'm going to New York on a, another trip. I call him up at Payne Weber and say, I'm going to DC for a meeting. I want to write off my trip and I want to do something at Payne Weber, a little piece on stress so I could write off. Well, do you know anything about stress? Well, I ran a department of preventive and stress medicine, so I must know something. You would think. <laughs> so long story short, I go to New York. I go to Payne Weber. I have these salesmen and traders for a half hour after the market closes. I have a little flip chart. I do the half hour in stress management. When the half hour is over, all these people come up and say, is this a beginning of a program or what? We need we need more of this. Right. My friend's boss standing there is standing there and I asked me if I do you have an associate in New York City? And I said, not yet. <laughs> said, if you want to do something, I'll come back and do it. Long story short, I negotiate a week-long training program. 37 people signed up for this one-week program. Nice. I, went, I had five cohorts, one hour a day for five days. And I took them on this five-hour trip one hour a day for five days. And they had to pay half the cost themselves. The company paid the other half. At the end of it, I asked them three questions. Was it worth the money? Would you like a follow-up? Would you recommend it to other people? And all 37 people said yes to every question. Mm. So I thought, if I can trick these folks in New York... <laughs> I could trick other people in other places. Yeah, this is going to play. This is going to play really well in Kansas. <laughs> I don't. I don't need to continue to be doing this under the auspices of a healthcare system. I can do this on my own. So I knew I wanted to continue the hour and a half sessions with every patient, but I decided over time what I wanted to do was to access. If you see only. A few people every day, you can't bother very many people. And I wanted to bother more people. <laughs> and you could do that in this other doing group work. With right. Them. So I made up the term organizational physician and started doing work with companies, for-profit, not-for-profit, not just in healthcare. I did work with people all about relational issues, because what I discovered was important in these hour and a half visits with every patient was the relationships in their lives were the most important thing by far and away. And they wanted them to be better. So why wait to get cancer to wake up and smell the coffee? Right. So during, during intermission, what they discovered, they discovered their own plan for the second reel of the movie. And I called the first reel, using the movie analogy, R-E-E-L. The second reel. I can smell it coming. <laughs> R-E-A-L. Yep. So they, they were writing, they were acting out a script that was given to them by others. And now they had a chance to write their own script. Right. What they did was so courageous. It, you know, some people wondered what the hell was wrong with them. And I said, you know, if you really do what you're telling me you're going to do, 
people will wonder what's wrong with you. Because <laughs> if you actually do what's in your own heart and what has the most value for you, you're going to make yourself much more unpredictable in terms of people that used to be able to manipulate you into predictable patterns of response. They're not going to so easily be able to do that. Right. Your, your own children may not be able to do that. Other people may. And that means you need a healthy support system. So on your journey, you know, I'm in your circle of support, but you need other people in your life that are going to support the lunacy of you being healthy in a culture that's not. Mm. And that is crucial because we're all too close to our own stuff. And we can't see our own stuff with clarity. We need other people to hold up a mirror and show us what we're doing in a way that allows us to see what we can't. And that means telling us the truth, even if it may hurt our feelings. But that's what we need to be accountable, to be able to live the life that we want to live. And with support, with encouragement, it's amazing what people will do. I wrote Why Normal Isn't Healthy, because why wait for the world stopping illness? Why wait? Don't wait. Too many people slip into a box long before they're dead. When you go into the box, you want to go in there for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> so what I learned, I, I wrote about, and I really liked doing that deep work with people. It was right. such an honor to get to do that. And also to have small group support work that I did outside of, you know, my own, my own practice. I mean, I need those people in my life and uh, was working with a group of people and a book called uh, First Questions in the Life of the Spirit, written by an old AA guy named Tom Powers, who, who started something called AAA, All Addicts Anonymous. And his premise was that all everybody's addicted to something. <laughs> you know, it may not be a substance. It may be work. You know, it may be affairs. It may be different food things. And the beginning of that, you're confronted with as in any kind of uh, 12-step process, honesty is central to the, you know, to everything. Being honest. I always thought I was an honest person. You know, you want honest, that's me. You know, I'm an honest guy. And I looked at my life and I saw I was honest with people where it was convenient to be honest. And with other people, well, you know, you know, I was honest before, you know, before my first wife and I got married, we lived together. And I mean, I was an honest guy. I told my parents, I didn't tell her parents, but I told my parents. And, well, why didn't I tell her parents? Well, I think it had something to do with the fact that her father had been goalie on Wisconsin's hockey team and center <laughs> on their football team or something, you know, that's it's, it's great big. And when I, I saw I was selectively honest. And if you go into a group of people and the first thing to do is people go into this work in a way where they're going to actually reveal themselves, peel away the layers and take a journey together. Everybody ought to have the opportunity to have that kind of experience. And in my journey, one of the things I was interested in doing is 
the group work because I saw how important that process was. And I thought that treatment centers could also bring together people with different ailments and use the same process they use for people that have substance abuse disorders. It doesn't matter what your excuse to get together is. If you go through that process, there's going to be a benefit that you're going to gain throughout the life cycle. We all need healthy support. We need to ask for it, and and we need to give it, and we need to be with other people that recognize that. Yeah, and as I as I sit here and, and listen to you, I'm struck by my own history. So I stopped practicing medicine in the year 2000. The first thing I did as I got certified as a coach and in interactive guided imagery, <laughs> I graduated wow. from the course from the Academy for Guided Imagery. I actually started a guided imagery practice, and I convinced health insurance to pay for it. That's good. I called up Group Health here in in the Puget Sound. I called up group health and I was trying to get covered for doing guided imagery sessions with people who had chronic pain and PTSD and all that kind of stuff. And I said, I want to talk to the legal department. And and I talked to the legal department and I said, do you believe that mental health is in the purview of a family doc? He said, said, yes. And I said, do you believe that guided imagery is a mental health technique? And he said, let me look it up. Came back. Yes. I said, great. Would you write a letter? (laughs) <laughs> to the other side of the house that says it's it's family practice and it's a mental health technique is I'm going to be billing for guided imagery. And I actually had a practice where we did that. I went deep and wide, way on inside journeys. And I can think of my own transformational pieces, the places that pivoted in my life were always related to either an inner journey like that or to a group experience. I belonged to a process work group for years after I quit my medical practice. And now Uh, For the last seven years, I've had regular support groups that I've hosted at the Happy MD. Right now, we we get together for two hours every week. We're friends. Yeah. I keep telling people it's going to devolve eventually into a high-end travel agency. (laughs) And everybody's (laughs) eager to get together in a physical location. We just can't figure out what it is just yet. So it's fascinating to me that... What you did was what a lot of people these days aspire to, to go off the grid, to start their own practice, to go deeper and wider, to inspire a connection and a healing that's not possible in the rat race and on the gerbil wheel. You did it before anybody else. I'm just going to give you the crown. Do you know what the the acronym GOAT means? You're the goat, my yeah. brother, the greatest of all time, the originator, the co-founder as a medical student of the American Holistic Medical Association. By the way, when I quit doing my practice in 2000, I went to an American Holistic Medical Association meeting, and that's where I met the folks who ran the Academy for Guided Imagery and said, yeah. they, they, they said, they went, took us through an imagery experience and let me know that it was okay to do imagery and not have a visual representation on the inside. I was a kinesthetic imager and it's like, set me free, man. It just totally blew my mind. By the way, if any of you who are listening, when you when you hear guided imagery, you say, oh, I'm no good at that because when you close your eyes, you don't see anything. That's okay. You're normal. You're normal. I've got some guided imagery for you. It's just that you don't see things. You feel them though. So release your other senses. You're going to have to have a great time now. <laughs> and you so, know who taught that when you first went? mm I just wondered. 
I can I, I can see his face, but it was called the Academy for Guided Imagery at that point in time. Yeah. And Larry Dossie was running the conference that I saw those things at. Yes. Yep. Good stuff. Yep. And then, then just to, let's put a let's put a bow on it right now because I don't believe you you have that practice right now. Is that correct? No, I quit. When you start traveling and you can't be with people in crisis, then that's a problem. So you know, and we didn't have this technology. Right. It took a while to grow the the other practice, and I I was interested in this idea of writing. I got a chance to to do a, a workshop with CEOs from small to mid-sized companies. It was called the Executive Committee. And one of the people involved there was a guy that was the, the head of Hazelden. That's when he and I had a meeting afterwards. And he said, you know, I'm interested in what you're doing. I had done biofeedback with them, with these executives in the small group setting. I had them for a three-hour thing. And he said, well, let's have a meeting because I think they're, what you're doing might be useful. I said, you know, what you're doing at Hazelden, other people could benefit from. He said, well, we're doing some stuff with smokers. And I said, well, I, I think that's great. I think that there could be something there for people with, regardless of what their excuse is, there's the possibility that other people could benefit from this process. Everybody's addicted to something. Right? Everybody's addicted to something. <laughs> And the whole idea is you're never, if normal isn't healthy, I'm a recovering normal person. <laughs> okay. I, you're never fully recovered. Doesn't matter. And that's exactly what addicts of all sorts say. You know, it's recovery. At any moment, it's possible that, you know, you can fall off the wagon. I mean, just the whole thing about being honest, that's a really hard thing to do particularly when you're the kind of person that feels other people. And the last thing we want to do is cause anyone pain. But if somebody knows that you love them, that you care about them, and that what you want is best for them, and they know that you're not saying what you're saying to hurt them, then they can feel that it's safe to let what you say come into them, although it's hard to hear. But we have to be willing to do that with people, and we have to be willing to accept that from people. Well, and I think to the extent that most doctors in most employee settings don't feel they have the time or the permission or the uh, ability to say it, given the rush and everything, uh, what I'm just going to say is if what we're talking about right now is pulling on your heartstrings... And if you think about your current practice of medicine, you're a physician or a nurse practitioner, PN, you're thinking about your current practice of medicine, and it's not as satisfying as you'd like to be because it isn't what you signed up for back when you chose to be a doctor. Somehow I got torqued into some corporate thing that doesn't feel quite right. I, I've got a quote, <laughs> you'll never be more beautiful than you are today and we'll never be here again. So the time to be in recovery from being a normal doctor that time can start whenever you want, and it does get better. When you look in the mirror and admit, beginning of all change is calling things by their right names, admit how you're feeling about your practice right now. So you can listen to Bowen's story about, you know, natural change process, following his instincts, making it happen, and see that it doesn't have to be a complicated thing. But I can tell you that a practice 
where you have the time and you have the support and you have the systems and you have the ability to connect better with patients that are ideal for you and give them the change that you're here to help them make. I think those things are always available. It's never too late. The good thing to, to know, it's always good to have people in your life that are extreme cases. And so I was really glad to meet Patch Adams, someone that was crazier than I was and spent <laughs> more time with patients than I did, which freed me up in terms of my own thought process about what is possible for me to do in terms of my own life. And you, as an example, making the choices that you've made gives people a chance to free up their thinking about what may be possible for them because everybody's path is going to be different. Right. And, I, and I'll also echo that. If you decide that you're going to start to explore some things that are alternatives to what you're doing right now, and you look outside of your current practice and you see somebody that what they're doing sort of flirts with you, you say, wow, that would be cool. I wonder what it would be like to be that. The first thing I would suggest you do is get on the phone and ask to shadow them. Because if you're coming from your heart, you're exploring some possibilities in your, in your recovery from being normal. If you're trying to think about exploring some possibilities and you reach out to somebody and say, hey, can I can I shadow you and watch what you do? Because I'm, I may be in a little bit of a transition here professionally, and, and I'd just like to be a first-person witness to what it's like to be you. I've never heard of anybody turning that request down. So I imagine you went and saw Patch Adams relatively quickly and you guys hang out together. Yeah, we, I heard him speak at an American Holistic Medical Association meeting. I was on the board and a board member introduced him. This guy gets up that I thought was probably an art therapist, really strange clothes, long hair, talked about going to the house or the hospital in the home, driving up the driveway. And up on the roof, Patch was up on the roof with the patient because although the hospital was free, everybody in the hospital had responsibilities. So you weren't there to just loaf. You got to participate in the upkeeping, upkeep in the house. So he was up with a patient on the roof fixing a problem with the roof <laughs> with no malpractice insurance. <laughs> And Patch was the only guy that was a member of the organization that figured he shouldn't have to pay dues because he didn't charge patients any money. And I was on the board at the time. And I said, well, I think that's fair. <laughs> I think that's fair. So anyway, at that meeting in Springfield, Missouri, I went up afterwards and I said, what you said was interesting. You are going to be in Topeka tomorrow. Uh, I live between here and Topeka. so." Why don't you just ride with me? We'll spend the night at my place. I'll, we'll get up early in the morning. I'll drive you to Topeka. And he said, okay, but I can't leave here till about 11 or 12 tonight because I have to do something tonight. And I said, oh, that's okay. So we left about midnight, got to my place about three. I had a little camcorder, you know, those little tape recorder video things. I introduced him to my family who was all asleep when we got there and when we left. So they could meet Patch. And, you know, we had a three-hour drive to Kansas City, then another hour and a half to Topeka the next morning and became fast friends. And as I said, he's the guy that got me into clowning. That was in the mid-1980s. And I started clowning with him in 91. 
Nice. What I want to do, Duone, is I want to take your clowning history and our discussion that that we are going to have at some point about fun in the office and that mm. kind of stuff and wrap that into a second podcast here. I think that I think the theme of what we've done today, the one that stands out to me, is one of do what feels right, follow your dreams. Don't be afraid to go deep. Um, everybody's addicted to something. <laughs> Two reels. Maybe you're maybe if you're uncomfortable with where you are right now, that there's a transition, the the reels are gonna gonna be switched here and you get to define what happens next. Exactly. It's your movie, dude. <laughs> it's you're your... not an extra. You're not an extra in everybody else's film. Not in the second reel. <laughs> not in the second reel, man. Not you're star the... stuff. Right. Right. Oh, such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Bowen. Bowen White. Thank you, Dyke. Yep. And it's uh, bowenwhite.com, B-O-W-E-N, White, W-H-I-T-E, bowenwhite.com. And uh, we'll see you in a future episode, Bowen. Everybody else, listen to this again. Watch how he followed that that little thread. Followed that little thread. You've got a thread, too. And if, if it's pulling on you, my encouragement is for you to begin to lift your head up and take a look around at what's available that could be different than you are right now. Keep breathing. Have a great rest of your day. I'll see you on the next Physicians on Purpose podcast. 